Um, I'm delighted uh, to introduce Dr. Dominic Lavery. Uh, he is Royal Academy Engineering Research Fellow in the Optical Networks Group, Department of Electronic and Electrical Engineering, UCL, and has spent the last decade researching optical fibre communications, particularly specialising in digital signal processing for fibre to the home networks, the sort of networks that are making our internet faster and better at the moment. He has over 100 published outputs, and is co-investigator in the joint UCL Aston Cambridge Research Program Transnet, a £6.1 million funded EPSRC project. So I'm delighted to hand over to, to Dom for why I can't sing with the Australians on the telephone and other questions about engineering the internet. Dom. Thank you very much, John, for the, for the introduction. So yes, uh, great to see you all here. Um, this is a, a lecture about the internet, and I'm sure you can't have failed to notice over the last couple of weeks, it's been in all the newspapers across the internet itself in the, in the online media, that broadband is very much back on the agenda. Um, there's been a, a couple of weeks where you, it's been inescapable. You, all you can hear about is fibre to the home and the future infrastructure and how everybody's going to deal with um, the future of our internet. And so I thought it was appropriate to, to maybe start with a quote. So the, the quote goes like this, um, we're committed to superfast broadband because it has the potential to transform our economy. Building a national high-speed broadband network will create jobs. And high-speed broadband once built spurs innovation and productivity and crucially optical fibre to the home and business will develop, deliver superfast speeds 50 times faster than what people use now. Now in light of what we've heard in the last couple of weeks, this might be unsurprising for you to hear. But what might be surprising is that this wasn't said by the current Shadow Chancellor, but by the former Prime Minister of Australia 10 years ago. Uh, the aspirations for the internet and for how we will deliver fast internet to people haven't changed uh, in the intervening 10 years. And it's kind of because we have this, uh, we're inspired by what we could potentially do if the internet were only a little bit better. That said, uh, the Australian model that he proposed was a flop. Um, successive governments never managed to get it off the ground and ultimately the Australian internet still isn't really that good. But the principle that underlies it hasn't really changed. However, this lecture isn't really about what we can do with the internet, but it's more about measuring what we can't do with the internet and what we can't do with the internet yet and maybe what we'll never be able to do with the internet. So, probably worth doing a bit of background. So, the first question that I'm going to answer is kind of what is the internet made of? How does it work? So the internet um, is best viewed through what's called the OSI model. So this is the, the layered structure of the internet. It's a bit like an onion. You peel off the different layers and you can see how the internet works on different, different levels. So the application layer is what you and I interface with the, in the internet most of the time. The protocols at the application layer are things like HTTP. When you access a website, um, for example, the UCL Minds website, you're interfacing with the internet at the application layer. But what happens underneath the application layer, the bits that you don't see, are perhaps slightly more interesting. There's five other layers below this um, that I'm going to just say are the preserve of computer scientists and network engineers. It's not really my field, but it's about how you move the data around using protocols around the internet to where it needs to go. And then the bottom layer is called the physical layer, and that's where I really am interested. And it's also where you have probably, it's the only other place where you'll really experience the internet. It's the physical bits 
where you plug parts of the internet together, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, Ethernet, all of these things are physical layer and they're governed by physical layer protocols. What's important to remember about all of these layers is that they're not perfect. They all slow things down in one way or another just a little bit. And I'll come back to that later in the lecture. At the physical layer, it's really now optical fibers that run the show. They're responsible for everything. You hardly ever see them in your day-to-day -day life. But actually, even things like wireless communications, you know, if you communicate with a mobile phone to a radio antenna, behind that radio antenna is an optical fiber carrying your signals somewhere else. Back in the 50s, optical fibers didn't exist, or if they did, they were preserve of research labs. Um, and so things like um, intercontinental communications were done with telegraph cables or wired cables, that kind of thing, up until uh, the invention of satellite. And for a brief couple of decades, satellites were responsible for intercontinental communications. And actually, they're quite easy to visualize, so people still kind of think that they are, even though they haven't been for a few decades now. And then optical fibers really came into their own and now optical fibers are responsible for moving data around the world. More than 99% of data that's transmitted anywhere is carried at some point over an optical fiber. They look like this. These are plastic optical fibers, but typically they're made of glass. And they use total internal reflection to guide light, either light that you can see or invisible infrared light, for example, which is what we typically use, from one end of the glass tube to the other, uh, with a very low loss. There's a lot of it about. In 2006, um, there was, which is roughly when people would consider it to be the boom of the internet communications, uh, was up until about 2000, the early 2000s. So boom times optical communications, um, they'd already installed 745 million kilometers of optical fiber around the world for different communications applications. That would be enough if you put it end to end to stretch from Earth to Jupiter. So it's already quite a lot. Just a few short years later, there was 1.4 billion kilometers of optical fibers installed, so almost twice as much. So that would stretch from Earth to Saturn. And then in successive years, there's been ever more installed. To, and this is all to meet our demand for faster and more reliable internet around the world. So now the most recent estimate I could get was that there's about four and a half billion kilometers of optical fiber, and that would be enough to reach from Earth to Neptune. It's a lot of fiber. It's a lot of glass. Um, a lot of it, although certainly not most of it, but a lot of it is used in submarine optical communication systems. Um, and I have with me, although I forgot to bring it down to the front, a, um, a slice of uh, submarine cable that you can look at after the lecture. Um, but essentially, yes, when you make a communication, whether it's telephone or internet communication to another continent, it's carried over optical fiber by your voice or your data being encoded on light, and it travels through an optical cable to its destination. Um, it's quite a remarkable feat of engineering in itself that this, that this can actually happen. Um, if you want to have a little play with uh, and have a look at where these links exist, there's a website here that tells you, that can show you an interactive version of this map. Okay, so I've said there's a lot of fiber. Yes, there is millions and billions of kilometers of optical fiber. And if there's so much of it, then why is my internet so slow? This is what people say, you know, aren't you making the internet faster yet? I thought that was your job. Um, <laughs> it kind of, kind of is. Um, and the internet is kind of getting faster. And I suppose slow is a relative term, right? It depends on what you're trying to do with the internet. 
I remember 20 years ago, you'd struggle sometimes to get online and send an email. And now when we say slow, we're really talking about the thing that we're demanding the most, which is online video. What does online video actually require? Well, not that much in terms of an internet connection. If you want to watch a standard definition video, uh, thank you, this is, uh, this is submarine optical, <laughs> a slice of submarine optical fiber cables. It's not that thick. These are the optical fibers here. You probably can't even see them on, on the video. Um, but maybe some of you closer to the front will be able to see. They're incredibly thin. Okay. Feel free to come and have a look afterwards. Um, so you don't require a very fast internet connection to watch video on the internet. To watch a standard definition video, you require a three megabit per second connection. To watch high definition, which is what most of us would like to watch, let's be honest, is five megabits per second. And this applies to things like Skype or FaceTime, online video conferencing as well. Ofcom um, do a survey every year to see what, the, what, what is available to customers in the UK. And it's quite amazing, actually. I was expecting when I was researching for this lecture, I thought, oh, well, you know, it used to be terrible. Um, but these days, it's quite good. Most people in most parts of the UK can receive internet that is fast enough to watch HD video. You might only be able to watch one stream in your home, but for most people, that's not an issue. Um, if you live in rural, where are we? Rural uh, UK, yes, you don't have there's a 10% there's a chance that your internet will not be fast enough to even watch a standard definition video. And I think when people talk about the problems with the internet speeds across the UK, this is the, really the group of people that they're talking about. Um, on the other end of the scale, um, the same report says that fiber to the premises, which is kind of like the, the gold standard of internet connections where optical fibers reach your house and there's no copper cabling in between to, to slow down the internet connection. That's available to about 7% of premises in the UK at the moment. Um, although, interestingly, the whole of Hull, who has a slightly different business model, um, so great for you if you live in Hull, not so great if you live everywhere else. But actually, what you'll be able to do with that internet is not so clear, because already you're able to watch HD video with standard connections. And so really, are we just going to be watching faster and faster videos? From a research point of view, we don't really care too much. We have uh, trends which tell us how fast the internet's going to get in the future. And let me tell you, it's going to get very, very fast. So users' bandwidth grows by about 50% per year. So that means if you have a 100 megabit per second connection today, in a year's time, it will be offered it to you at about 150 megabit per second. This trend was developed by somebody called Jakob Nielsen, who's an internet consultant. And um, it's a very strange metric because essentially what he says is he looks at the internet connection speed available to him that year. He makes a note of it and then plots the trend. And actually, it happens to be a very good predictor of global trends in internet connection speeds. Um, it's predicting that around now we should be getting about 300 megabits per second connections to the home. That's about right uh, for high-end users maybe a gigabit by the turn of the decade. And then by 2024, we should be getting around 10 gigabits per second to your house. Now, regardless of what you're going to do with it, we need to know how we're going to get there from a physical layer perspective. What does the research tell us we have to do to make that happen? So optical fibers work a bit like this, optical fiber communications. We take an electromagnetic wave, light, that is oscillating. Uh, typically, we use one that operate, uh, oscillates at a very high frequency, 190 terahertz, roughly. 
Um, on the right here, what I'm going to show is something called a constellation diagram. It just shows you uh, how the phase and the amplitude of the signal changes. Um, and by changing the phase and amplitude of a signal, this, this wave, we're able to encode information. Essentially, we, have, we create states that the signal can occur in, and those states encode different information. So for example, by turning the light on and off, just blinking the light on and off like this, we can encode ones and zeros, a one when it's on, a zero when it's off. We can also change the phase of the light, which is a slightly strange thing, but essentially all we're doing is very slightly slowing down the wave, the light wave, so that it changes uh, its oscillation with respect to the, to the rest of the wave. So that's another way of sending information. That's called phase modulation. We can encode the information in multiple levels of phase and amplitude, which gives you something like this, which can encode 16 states to encode information. And the final trick that we play, and this is all pretty standard stuff now in optical communications in the last 10 years, but the final trick that we play is light can exist in two polarization states at the same time. So we can encode information in the second polarization state. Um, anybody who's had a pair of polarizing sunglasses might notice they cut out about half the light. That's one polarization. So we just use the second polarization to encode data as well. So this is the state of the art, and this is kind of what people do. So recently, the open research questions were, first of all, which amplitudes and phases of light should we use to encode information? Nobody knew. And how many amplitudes and phases of light should we use? Um, 16, 64, 1,000? Again, nobody knew. What people would tend to do, the research methodology was literally, you would send signals until, uh, with more and more data encoded until they were overcome by the noise of the transmission medium that you get from amplifiers and the optical fibers themselves. And then you would scale back one level um, so that the system just about worked. This was a slightly crazy methodology. And actually, what we've done at UCL is we've really introduced a paradigm shift in the way we design these systems. We said, instead of just making it just about work, actually, how about looking at the information content that's left in a signal after you've transmitted it through an optical fiber? So you say, OK, there's a certain amount of information that we can extract from this signal theoretically. And then you go about designing your signal in a different way, such as like this, with non-uniform arrangement of phases and amplitudes so that you're able to tolerate more noise. So a few years ago, we, we did this. We demonstrated that it really works, and that for the first time ever, we were able to send a terabit per second, a 1,000 gigabits per second through an optical fiber on one set of wavelengths. And this was something that was not possible using any other means. And the Mail Online picked it up, and they said, um, yes, this is all wonderful. And now we could download, with this technology, the entire HD Game of Thrones box set in less than a second. Um, truly great aspirations there. At the time, there was only six series of Game of Thrones, so maybe it would take slightly longer than a second now. I'm not sure if that diminishes the result. Um, but on a more serious note, what can we really do with internet that is just this fast? So some of you might remember earlier in the year the Event Horizon Telescope. Um, this was a collection of radio telescopes from all over the world collecting data um, to try and take the first picture of a black hole. And this is the image of a black hole. And there was a lot of data collected. There was five petabytes of data. So that's 5,000 terabytes or 5 million uh, gigabytes of data. It's just so much data. And what you'd like to be able to do is send that over the internet to a central processing location where supercomputers could generate the image. And indeed, that's what they did. But the internet just isn't currently fast enough for that. 
So what they had to do was put it on hard disks and literally ship it on planes um, instead of using the internet to send the data. So the issue with this is obviously um, <laughs> shipping, shipping data by planes means that our internet is not fast enough yet for some applications. And hopefully in the future, when some of the stuff that we've developed recently gets deployed, we'll be able to do transmit signals like this over the internet with no problem. Uh, this five petabyte data stream, if you transmitted it with the technology that we've just developed that was in the previous slide, it would have taken about half a day to send over the internet. Um, so hopefully in the future, watch out Event Horizon Telescope, we're, we're coming for you. Um, this is Casey Bauman, by the way, sorry, I meant to say she was the one who developed the algorithm that uh, was able to image the black hole. So I know what you're thinking, you're probably thinking the same as me, if the internet is so incredibly fast with all these optical fibers and things, why is it that I can't sing with Australians on the telephone, something that keeps me awake at night? Um, has anyone ever tried to do this, sing using Skype or quick show of hands, has anyone tried to sing over Skype? Just me, okay. <laughs> it's really hard to do. Um, and there's some physical reasons for that. Essentially, as my colleague said to me, yeah, of course, it's latency. Well, yeah, it is latency. Um, anyone who's tried to play an online game is really familiar with ping, which is the round trip time, the amount of time it takes to send a signal and get it back. Um, it makes it very difficult to play online games. It makes it impossible to sing with other people on the internet. So latency is a combination of network or protocol delay, those layers that I mentioned in the OSI model um, that delay signals. And it's also, uh, to a certain extent, to do with uh, propagation delay. So basically, how long does it take for light to travel through your transmission medium to send a signal from one place to another, and then come back again, because ultimately you want to hear the response of the person that you're trying to sing with. Um, light in a vacuum travels at about 3.3 milliseconds uh, per thousand kilometers. So that means in, in 3.3 milliseconds, light will tr uh, move a thousand kilometers, which is about the length of the UK, actually, now I think about it, about the distance from uh, Lizard Point to John O'Groats. Um, in glass, because glass has a higher refractive index than a vacuum or air, it's about 50% higher, it takes 50% longer for light to transmit over the same distance. So in glass, it takes about 4.8 milliseconds for light to transmit a, a, a thousand kilometers. Uh, this is a problem for latency because it increases propagation delay. So a few years ago, uh, I was uh, organizing a workshop at an optical communications conference in America, and we tasked some teams with trying to come up with ways of uh, essentially doing what's called a networked music performance. It's like a slightly more embellished version of singing with someone on the telephone. You connect a group of people together, maybe each section of an orchestra, but they're all in physical, different physical or geographical locations. And you try and see how far apart they could be and still perform together in time. Um, they tried this, and so they didn't do it with an orchestra, they did it with a guitarist and a pianist. The guitarist was in Milan, the pianist was in Dallas. Um, so it was an Italian team who were doing this. And they uh, determined that the transmission link length was 9,000 kilometers. So that means that the propagation delay is about 45 milliseconds, roughly. They found that due to the protocols that are responsible for managing the internet and things not going in exactly straight lines, they actually found that their latency was about 70 milliseconds. So 140 milliseconds round trip time. 
Um, and then they tried to, oops, they tried to uh, play together. And this is what happened. One, two, three, four. in time but certainly not a great listen right um, if you're trying to you could hear them kind of adjusting for the delay between each other playing and that's a relatively low latency connection like I said 140 milliseconds round trip time um, so why doesn't this work okay so this is like I said this is called a networked music performance Humans find this incredibly difficult if your latency is greater than about 30 milliseconds. And there's been studies looking at you know, how low it can be. For different applications, it's like you know, higher or, or lower, but for, for specifically music performances, 30 milliseconds seems to be about the limit. Um, actually, just as an aside, if anybody's ever used a virtual instrument or some kind of uh, audio production software where you can play and the computer plays the sounds interpreted by a keyboard, there's often delay introduced there, and typically what you can tolerate there is also about 30 or 50 milliseconds. So it's a similar kind of thing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to play two beeps, and these two beeps are going to be separated in time, and they'll show you where the start and end of a communication link would be. So this is just an example. Um, as uh, I was saying to one of my colleagues earlier, I did unfortunately only realize just before the lecture that it sounds like a supermarket checkout. And now, you'll all, and now you'll all be thinking about that. Um, so that's the example of the two beeps. If you put those two beeps 30 milliseconds apart, um, which is the limit, as I said, for, for human interaction singing, it sounds like this. Oops, not like that. So pretty close, right? Almost coincident. And then the Dallas to Milan real-world round-trip time was this. So there's an audible difference. You can actually hear, you can distinguish these two beeps, which is ultimately why you can't keep in time. So this leads to two questions. Can we do anything practical to reduce latency? And ultimately, will we ever be able to sing with Australians on the telephone? Because I know we all want to. Um, well, with a perfect fiber optic communication network, we kind of get this halo of possible 30 millisecond round trip times around uh, the UK, around London, where we are. Um, Western Europe, yes, that's definitely doable. If you had a perfect network, you could sing with uh, the Germans on the telephone, um, but not with any of um, the other continents, really, maybe North Africa. Um, so how about this? Uh, we look at now exactly how far away Australia is. This is where we are exactly right now. And where we're really talking about is um, about 17,000 kilometers away in uh, southeast Australia. And the reason I've chosen southeast Australia, Canberra, a place called Hughes in Canberra as a, as, a, as a particular choice is because there's a server there that I could test, a computer server that I could test the latency to. Um, what happens when we try and make this connection? So theoretically, if we took this route around the world, like this, the uh, distance is just short of 17,000 kilometers, and the theoretical one-way latency is 85 milliseconds. Um, 
However, when you actually measure this using ping, for example, the round trip time's about 330, 340 milliseconds. And so the, the delay sounds like this. Okay, so there's no way you're gonna be able to keep in time with somebody with that kind of delay. But that's way more than it should be. This is because, and so I use traceroute for this, some of you might know traceroute, shows you where your signal is actually going. And it's going the wrong way, that's the first problem. It's not going across the European and Asian continent, it's going west across North America. Um, instead of going 17,000 kilometers, it's going over 20,000 kilometers. So this is the first problem we're trying to communicate with Australia. It's the links that actually get used are way too long. It takes the wrong route around the world. And part of the reason for this is because of availability of high-speed submarine links. We've made them really good on the Atlantic and the Pacific, but the terrestrial links uh, that go east aren't quite so good, they're not so fast, and there's less availability. So the network's quite clever, and it says, okay, the best way to go is west. So the first thing that we can do to reduce the latency of the internet is to design a better terrestrial network, and essentially install more optical fibers. Um, I can see one of my colleagues who actually works on real networks in the back there smiling, so uh, I must have said something right. Um, from the physical layer, what, what can we do about that? They said optical fiber communications. Maybe we can make better optical fibers. So can we do better than glass optical fibers, reduce the refractive index? And the answer is yes. The University of Southampton, the ORC in Southampton, are world experts in developing what's called hollow core optical fibers. So they guide light, they kind of encourage the light to stay in an air gap in the middle of the fiber uh, by developing these glass uh, microstructures. So this is the front end if you look at an optical fiber, what we're doing is we're looking at it this way on, um, under a microscope, and it has these fine structures here which encourage the light to stay in the air. Now we know that the speed of light in air is roughly the same as the speed of light in a vacuum, which is much faster than it is in glass. The problem with these fibers is uh, even though the light travels with very low latency through them, they have quite a high loss. Um, typically, this type of fiber a, a kilometer of this stuff has less attenuation than a window pane, um, which is incredible. Uh, the uh, hollow core fiber has about the same attenuation as a window pane, which is, well, okay, slightly less, but it's improving, but it's quite high. So one of the issues is testing these things. And one of the things that we've been able to do recently is uh, investigate these fibers to show that you could actually send the same signals that we send over the standard stuff, um, but over this much lower latency fiber. Then there's this open question, could we use these fibers to carry data around the world? And the answer is yes. So the good thing about these fibers is because there's no glass in the core of the fiber, they can carry a lot of power. So essentially what we've done in testing these fibers is we've just blasted them with watts of optical power so we actually get a signal at the end, overcoming the high loss of these fibers. Um, what we also were able to show using this Southampton fiber was that um, they're more robust to signal distortions than standard fiber. If you put too much power into a standard fiber, then the signal that you send gets all mixed up. Uh, it essentially gets distorted in response to the optical power in the glass. But because the light's not traveling in the glass in these fibers, they're actually better fibers for transmitting signals anyway. So what did we show? Well, we showed that you could send signals at these, well, much more than a terabit per second data rate, but crucially at the speed of light, um, or close to the speed of light, and now not limited by the speed of light in the glass. 
So there was our 30 millisecond halo um, showing where we could, we could communicate within the world. And if you change the fibers, again, remembering this is a perfect network, but if you change the fibers to be this hollow core fiber, then the propagation delay goes down so much that you can transmit over an extra few thousand kilometers and still be able to sing with somebody actually over that distance, theoretically. Um, so the bad news about this is that we're now up against fundamental physics, so we'll never be able to sing with the Australians on the telephone, unfortunately. Um, but the good news is that one day we might be able to sing with the Canadians. <laughs> so um, that's the uh, end of that lecture. I just want to say thanks to everybody and also the grants who've uh, sponsored, this, uh, sponsored this work. Thanks very much for coming. Thank you very much, Dominic. Um, fascinating lecture. We have time for one or two questions. Well, very fine. Just wait for. Can we just wait for the microphone to make sure we get uh, get captured? The, the yeah, this slide here where you're showing. Uh, I, I think, if I'm understanding it right, the inner circle is who we can sing with at the moment, and the outer circle is who we might be able to sing with in the future. Mm -hmm. What's the reason for them not being concentric? Uh, it's because the world is a ball. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, it's a, yeah, this is like a cartographer's dream, isn't it, this presentation? Um, the, the, the world is a ball, and therefore when you flatten it out, it gets slightly distorted towards the North Pole. You were hoping light went quicker in... Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Any other questions? You know, I was worried somebody was going to ask me who these people were because I've really got no. You, you mentioned uh, about the limits to do with with distance and latency. Do you think there are limits in terms of data rate? I remember when I first started working on optical fiber, everyone was saying it, it's infinite, and but we. You allude to that we're starting to hit some of those limits. Where do you see those limits going? Yeah, it's definitely not infinite. Mm. Um, what we don't know is what the limits are when you have a repeated system. So these kind of systems where you send signals around the world, there's not just an optical fiber, one piece of optical fiber. There's amplifiers every so long, so often. And that makes these systems really quite complicated mm. to analyze. Um, but access networks, so this is the short last mile bit that connects to your house. We actually know what the limits are of those networks pretty well because there's typically no amplifiers there. And um, it's a big number. Mm -hmm. um, it's in the petabits per second. And I think most people probably wouldn't need to thousands or millions of gigabits per second to their house. But who knows? Maybe who knows? in the future. Um, but that's the, that's the limit of those networks. And by extension, a uh, loose upper limit on the, mm. on the longer networks too. Okay. Thank you. Oh, uh, where are we going with the mic? Um, thanks for the talk. I just wanted to ask, um, so this, the latency issue, issue here was presented in terms of singing with Australia. What other sort of issues is latency facing? What sort of the, what's the core issue that it's holding back at the moment? Okay, so um, mainly it's propagation delay. Um, there's very little that we can do about that without changing the optical fiber type or by making the routes more direct. But some of the loop routes are pretty direct. You know, from Milan to, to Dallas, the theoretical latency was 45 milliseconds, and they were getting 70 in that test. 
Um, and that is just one submarine optical cable pretty much going from, I think it comes up to the UK and then across. So th then by, ex by inference, you're looking at protocols being the problem. Computer scientists could do a better job of setting up um, uh, connections. You know, and uh, now I'm getting well out of the remit of physical layer. One of the issues that we have is things like um, the internet protocol is uh, packet-based. Um, the internet protocol guarantees the packets will arrive, but not necessarily when they'll arrive. It just guarantees that they will. Uh, what we want is more reliable protocols, maybe having some interaction between the network layer and the physical layer that says, OK, can you set up a circuit, what was classically called a circuit, a dedicated communication link so that this communication can happen without any protocol overhead. This is something that we're looking at within our current project called Transnet. Um, but suffice to say, it's very difficult to do because these layers don't typically talk to each other like that. Hi. Uh, that one? Yeah. Hi. Um, when you're talking about the theoretical latency, is that literally if it could travel at speed of light? Or like, where does that come from? So that's basically yes, if it could travel at the speed of light. So the, f the lower limit, the inner circle here is uh, the speed of light in glass, and the outer limit is the speed of light in, in air or a vacuum. They're very similar. Um, one thing that I didn't mention is obviously a quicker way through the Earth is to just go straight through it. Um, th th this sounds like a slightly crazy thing to do. With optical fibers, you're certainly not going to be burying through the Earth's crust. Um, but people talked about this a while ago with neutrinos, when there was excitement about superluminal neutrinos that traveled faster than the speed of light, which unfortunately they don't. Um, but for a while, CERN thought they did. And uh, people said, well, we could send low latency signals through the Earth to do that. Uh, but that's still quite far. Any two points, it's going to be 12,000 kilometers across. So that's still, even with, at the speed of light, that's still too slow to sing with somebody. Ah. My comments was you can put through. Then you get instead of pi r, you get you, you get one point five times wider distance. That's through the, like the tangent. Yeah. It's the issue is, I don't know what the record is, but we've never been able to bury more than a few meters down, uh, a few kilometers down. Sorry. So one thing that's interesting, perhaps for people, is that we do bury some of our submarine optical cables actually under the seabed. Near the Earth, we don't like them being picked up by trawlers because they're powered cables. And when trawlers pick them up and they say, what is this thing I picked up? And they try and cut through them, they get a nasty 10 kilovolt electric shock. So what we do instead is we bury them near the shore so that doesn't happen. And then, um, and then further out, they just rest on the seabed. So there is some burying going on, but not enough to make the distance shorter. Okay. Any other questions? Yep, on there. So we're talking about digital infrastructure. So I'm just curious about, um, now we're trying to reduce the uh, latency. Are there any obstacles in terms of political states, uh, state agency that is impeding you, you know, uh, building the infrastructure underneath the, uh, for example, building the marine cable, any political obstacles? Yes, yeah. uh, is the answer. Um, and none that I would particularly like to discuss kind of in an open forum, except maybe one that pertains to the UK territory of uh, near, near Argentina, Falkland. Falkland Islands. <laughs> so we, we looked into this uh, recently. Um, the Falkland Islands doesn't have a submarine optical communication link. It has a satellite link. 
Um, and the reason is because there's no place where you could economically build a cable that isn't in uh, a region that's not disputed territory. Okay, so if you want to communicate with Argentina, Argentina has a claim on the Falklands Island, as does Britain. Um, so we're certainly not going to be landing fiber optic cables in Argentina, uh, which would mean you have to either go round through the Antarctic to Chile, which would be costly, or to the east to Africa, which would also be costly. Um, so what they have is they have a very fast satellite communication, which governs the, which is used by the entire 3,000 population on the Falkland Islands. Um, but the issue with that is the latency is even worse than, than going to Australia in terms of latency, because the signal has to go all the way up to a geostationary satellite and all the way back down again, and that's typically in the tens of thousands of kilometers. Okay. Any final questions, Polina? takes it only takes half a day I mean it's long half a day um, so why not just transmit surely shipping is long would have taken longer than half a day so it would take half a day at one terabit per second which is our sort of state-of-the-art fast connection uh, as far as I know the kind of the best uh, network interface cards are about 100 gigabits per second so you're already looking at 10 times longer so maybe five days to send that that would be sustained over those five days between any two points on the, on the globe where they need to get the data from. Potentially, you could do things in parallel, but it does just get to a point ultimately where you're just like, do you know what, let's put it on hard drive, stick it on the plane, it'll be there in half a day, and there's no problems with reliability or, or, or any data getting lost. Um, as you know, Polina, the internet could be much, much better. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I, I think we're, we're, you know, we're making good headway into that happening, but... You know, in five, ten years' time, I think they probably will do that over the internet, that kind of thing. But obviously, by then, they'll be generating way more data. Indeed. We could spend more time on Twitter. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I'm not an engineer. I'm a musician. I might have good news for you that um, the, the thing about the uh, performance, uh, that latency between Dallas and Milan, I've met people who, who have worse latency in the same room, you know. <laughs> But conversely, there's people who, who always rush. You count them in, and they always play faster than you want. So you want to get one of those guys in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> so when you sing, they'll always be rushing ahead, and it'll actually match your tempo that yeah. you're doing. So you get your dream come true. You'll be able to sing with them. Yeah, my, my, I remember Bob Dylan could, could barely keep in time with himself playing the guitar, could he? So, you know, he's not the same person. One, one thing, actually, yeah, it's very true. When we looked at this for the, for the US event where they made that video, and, and similar things. Um, somebody pointed out, yeah, from one side of an orchestra to another, the latency, because the orchestras are so big and the speed of sound is actually quite slow, from one side of an orchestra to another, there's a few milliseconds of latency, and they're able to deal with this, um, mainly by watching the conductor, uh, actually, which is why conductors are so important in orchestras. They're not just there waving around. Um, but yeah, it's true, there are people who can tolerate more or less. I think 300 milliseconds is still a bit of a push for anybody. Uh, but, you know, may, maybe uh, people will get better at this in the future as well. Um, so, Google and Amazon, for example, are laying their own private fibre for their own networks across the world. Uh, who do you see driving the deployment of new technologies like this? Is it... Uh, public ISPs, Google, Facebook, for example, and Facebook, 
country, uh, national actors? Yeah, so, so um, I, w I don't want to criticise anybody directly, but one of, the, what <laughs> one of the reasons for this whole issue, this discussion in the last few weeks about nationalising, is because network operators typically only like to put in infrastructure where they're going to make some money. Um, and internet service providers don't directly make money from the over-the-top services that are provided, like Netflix or Amazon or Google. Um, what's interesting about Google in particular, I will pick on them, because they recently developed an online gaming service. So they're seeing faster internet as a way to, um, to turn things that we typically would have had in our homes, like games consoles, into like a cloud-based service that runs over their network infrastructure. And they actually, in the US, have a few pilot cities where they have their own internet service provision called Google Fiber, um, which incidentally is, uh, is free. If anybody was wondering how much it costs, it's free uh, for the basic offering. Um, so it's a different business model. So they're trying, they have the money and flexibility to try new business models um, and also to see whether or not they can reduce latency in their networks for, for example, cloud-based gaming. So they're actively interested in this and I think it's gonna be those big players who've got the money will be pushing this, uh, this new technology forward. Um, the problem for us as consumers is, is this really what we want to do with the internet or do we want it to be a nationally owned thing where you know, we've got essentially full flexibility to do what we like with the internet rather than buying it as a service which just provides a few features that a company, a particular company tells us that we want. I'm not sure what the answer is, but it's gonna be interesting to see in the next few years how it develops. Well, I think we're about uh, coming to time, so I will draw to a close. Thank you very much for a really interesting talk. Thank you very much.